What we've been doing is looking at the seven letters written to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Now, each of these letters are unique and specific to a church at the time, but collectively what they present is Jesus's final instruction to his church, his perfect or complete church. That's what the number seven represents in Revelation. And so we're hoping to see in these seven letters what Jesus would want his church to know as it awaits his great return. Today, the letter is to the church in Philadelphia. Written into that text tells us a little bit about both the church and the city itself of Philadelphia. It was a city and a church that was slightly unstable, on unstable ground. See, even this city, Philadelphia, was unstable. In AD 17, a massive earthquake hit the city of Philadelphia, and all of the residents had to move out. And so at the writing of this letter, they weren't even living in what was the confines of Philadelphia. They were still nervous that another earthquake was going to come. You don't get much more unstable than that. The city of Philadelphia had gone through three name changes since its inception, and its history wasn't that old. When somebody conquered it, they changed the name. It was back to Philadelphia at this point. And so it was a city that was unstable, and it was a city whose name had lost its identity. What also is present in the city is some opposition. This is opposition that we've seen in one of the previous letters. Jesus calls it the synagogue of Satan. It's Jews who are standing in opposition to the Christians. The church in Philadelphia is small. It says they have but little power. The implication there being they don't have great social, political, or economic might, but also as a church, they are small. There's not a lot of people in the church. And so how does a church go from this small church and unstable ground with an unstable city identity to what Jesus says it can be on the other side? How does the church move from that to that? By walking through the right open door. How do you and I move from one place in our lives to the next place? One season to the next by walking through the right open doors and by letting the right doors stay shut. I bet if you took some time this morning, you could see that some of the biggest wins in your life are when you walked through the right door and some of the most difficult seasons of your life are when you walked through the wrong door by forcing it open. You use every tool in your toolbox to get the door open. God wanted it shut. And when we walk through the right doors, there's great victory. We see that in the letter on the other side. Now, this church in Philadelphia, although it was small in status, there were a few things really good about it. Jesus says, first, you are a church of the word of God. They've held on to his word, both individually and corporately. Although this letter is more addressed corporately, there are, of course, individual things that we can pull out of it. Both individually and corporately, we must be people of the word of God. And one of the underlying 
truths presented in this scripture is that when we follow God's word, when we don't do what we've previously talked about in this series, shift to culture, when we don't compromise, when we don't tolerate bad teaching, but we hold to the truth of scripture, that God leads us into good things. And when we're not people of the word, when we set it aside, when we're going to make decisions, when we get scared or nervous and shift with culture, we walk through doors we were never supposed to walk through. When we face things we were never supposed to face. So first, this church in Philadelphia is a church of the word of God. I pray that we would be too. Secondly, it's a church that has kept the name of Jesus. They haven't shifted with the culture. To keep the name of Jesus doesn't mean they don't like take his name in vain. It means that they hold on to the identity of what a disciple was supposed to be. As previously stated, they didn't compromise, they didn't shift, they didn't tolerate. They held on to their discipleship in Christ. They kept or preserved the name of Christ. And the third thing he teaches us about this church, a little further into the letter, it says that they patiently endured. The idea there being this, that they just kept on sowing. They just kept on sowing. Even when they didn't see great results, even when their little church wasn't growing, uh, even when they didn't um, have all of the great things that they thought maybe they should have gotten, they just patiently endured and they kept on sowing. And so Jesus looks at the church that faithfully sowed without any great reaping, that held on to his word and that kept his name. And he brings them some really good news. He says, I've opened up a door for you. Now, this would have made a lot of sense to the church in Philadelphia because geographically, the city of Philadelphia was a gateway into the great unknown of the rest of the world at that point. And so um, one analogy I saw this week was like the, the, the wild, wild west and the gold rush of the 1800s. And there were certain towns that were gateways into this. Philadelphia was like that into the great unknown geographically. Practically, what Jesus is saying to this church in Philadelphia is though things have been slow, because you have been faithful to the word, because you have kept my name, now I've opened up a door for you. I've shut some things and they're gonna stay shut. I'll protect you and watch over you. Now I've opened up the door and at the end, he'll tell us what it looks like and who we get to become when we walk through the right doors. This morning, I want to help you understand how collectively as church, as a church, we can walk through the right doors that God presents us and how you individually, you can pull these out for yourself and the Holy Spirit can grant you that discernment and ability to do that, how you can make sure you walk through the right doors. And you know which doors I'm talking about. Start the business or not. Date the person or not. Take the job or not. Move to Kentucky or not. Don't move to Kentucky. That's weird. Stay here. And in this story and throughout the scripture, we see God's open door policy. So this morning, I've got five points for you to help us all understand God's open door policy. And it starts right at the beginning of the letter. 
First, we have to see who has the open door policy. It's God's, or in this case, it's Christ. And who is he? Well, he's the holy one. He's the true one. He has the key of David. And what he opens, no one will shut. And what he shuts, no one will open. He is holy, true, key holder, door opener. It's a song in the making right there. He's holy, true, door opener, key holder. I switched him. That's who he is. That's why they can be so confident that the door that has been opened is the right door for them to walk through because of who the one that opened it is. He's holy. He's true. Why wouldn't you want to walk through what he's opened for you? So the holy, true door opener, key holder, Jesus invites this church into what he's opened. Now, the first point of God's open door policy is this, that an open door is a kingdom opportunity that he wants his church or he wants you to do. It is a kingdom opportunity. Bad theology in the Christian church uses this idea of the open door, which is all throughout the scriptures, by the way. I'll point out a few other ones. And we have this lingo in church culture about open doors, but open doors, God's open door policy is it is a kingdom opportunity, not a build your own kingdom opportunity. Sometimes those two things align. Sometimes... We use God's open door policy not to serve his kingdom, but to serve ourselves. This open door policy, though it's good for us, is ultimately about building his kingdom. It's ultimately about extending his interests. One example that I can use to prove that is in Isaiah 22, um, there's a direct reference. Well, I guess this text is referencing Isaiah 22. And in Isaiah 22, there's this obscure Old Testament character. His name is Iliakon. And Iliakon has the key to King David's treasury. David was not poor. On the other side of those doors, imagine if you've seen the world's greatest movie, National Treasure, and you've seen the last scene, when they walk in, they see all of the treasure. I imagine it was something like that, or the cave in Aladdin. David was a rich dude, and Iliakon had the key to the king's treasury. That meant that no road could be built, no palace could be constructed, no soldier could be paid unless Iliakon opened the door. In order for there to be the extension of the king's will, the door to the treasury had to be opened. So every time David wanted to do something, Iliakon would have to be involved. He had the only key. The only key. So imagine David saying, ah, there's an opportunity over here. We're going to do whatever they did in ancient Israel. It's going to cost whatever they used to pay for things. Eliakon, go get it. Opens up the door, puts it in the wheelbarrow, walks out, gold coins, build a palace. Actually, Solomon did that, but build something else. Probably got into a rhythm 
a habit. This is what we do. Imagine one day, David walks down to the treasury. Doors open. Ilya Khan's in there. Wheel, wheelbarrow is overflowing with money. And David's like, sweet, what are we building? And Ilya Khan goes, oh, well, this is, this is actually for me and my family. What? Certainly getting fired. Probably getting executed. This is why you don't steal pencils at work, okay? Ilya Khan did not have the key to the treasury to advance his own wealth, to advance his family's status. He had the key to extend the king's will and the king's kingdom. That's why he had the key. Point number two in God's open door policy. In God's timing, the right doors will open with the right key. So what of this key? What of this key of Iliacon? Where does the key go? I mean, eventually Iliacon died. I don't know if this was something that was hereditary and you pass it down to the next person or you got trained in being a key holder or whatever. But at the beginning of the text, Jesus says, I am the key holder of the King David. What's he saying? He's transitioning this kingdom from an earthly kingdom to a spiritual kingdom. And Jesus is saying, I am the greater David. I'm an heir to a greater throne. I'm the fulfillment of the Davidic line. And Jesus becomes the key holder. The key holder to what? Not some earthly treasury of David. No, a heavenly treasury of God. It rings of Ephesians chapter one when he says the the riches and the power of the kingdom are granted to you now in and through Christ. And so Jesus becomes the greater key holder who has access to the treasury of the Lord. And if David wasn't poor, I promise you, God's not poor. And no act of redemption, no salvation, no hope, no healing, no restoration, no movement of his, no um, healthy church of his being planted. Nothing happens without Christ being involved. That's how it works with Eliakon. That's how it works with the fulfillment in Christ. When God wanted to do something and bring forth redemption, he sent down Jesus as the key holder. Jesus had to face the cross to become the key holder. I don't know what Eliakon had to do. And now, in God's timing, with the right key, Jesus, the right doors can be opened. The right doors of kingdom opportunity, corporately for the church and personally for the believer. We can't rush God's timing, never works. We can't come up with our own key, like our own plan, our own strategy, our own whatever to get the door open. In fact, the scriptures are filled with stories of people who tried to either create their own door, knock down the door, open the door with the wrong key, and every time it turns out really bad. 
really bad. Moses wanted to open up a door, the liberation of the Israelite people. So he murdered somebody in the process. Then he got sent out to the wilderness for 40 years. I hope if you open the wrong door, it doesn't mean you have to wait 40 more years. Did for Moses. It wasn't God's timing. There's one story, Abraham and Sarah, they're in the Old Testament part of the Bible, and God actually, at that point, he aligned what he was doing in his kingdom with their personal desires, which is they wanted to have a child, and God shows up, and he says, you're going to have a child, and that's the door that's going to open up, and over time, a long time, the kid wasn't happening, they were getting old, and they said, let's come up with our own key or our own strategy in order to do it, and literally, wars are still being fought today because they did. the right time, though, God opens the door to kingdom opportunity. Christ, the right key, opens up the door, and we get to walk in it. And it's good. It's good when we do. We have access, then, to the king's treasury for the king's benefit. I'll get into a little bit later how you know which doors to walk into and which ones not to. That'll be step four. Let me give you step three. Prayer partners in opening some doors. I put some there in parentheses because God can do whatever he wants. And the church in Philadelphia, we don't see a direct line between their prayer and this door that God opened up. But as we look at the entirety of the doctrine of open door throughout the entire scripture, we see that prayer opens some doors. Colossians, I believe it's 3-4. It might be 4-3. One of those two. It's 4-3. Colossians 4-3. Paul specifically prays this or asks this. Pray that the door would be opened. The language shouldn't surprise us. God, through his Holy Spirit, knows what he's doing. Paul says, pray that the door for ministry would be opened. Prayer partners in opening some doors. So in another way, there are certain doors in your life and in our church that will never be opened until they are prayed open. They will remain shut. We also, in this point, see the progression of the key. Some of you may know where I'm going with this one. Got to flip back in my Bible a little bit to Matthew chapter 16. And by the way, guys, we got to see the use of language, the use of connection throughout the entire scriptures here. Verse 19 of Matthew 16. This is Jesus' first reference to his church. First reference to his church. I will give you the keys. You remember when you were 16 and mom and dad gave you the keys? You remember when you were working that retail job and you became a key holder? And all of a sudden you're like, I'm important around here. I started working my first job in 19. We had digital keys called fobs. When I got my first fob, I thought I was the most important man in America. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Nothing happened in David's kingdom unless Iliacon was a part. When our redemption came, nothing happened unless Jesus was a part. Post the resurrection, after the planting of the church, God is saying, nothing happens unless my church plays its part. We're the new key holders. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Let's not be caught in the king's treasury trying to build kingdoms of our own. Trying to use the keys for our own celebrity status, the building of our own palaces, We're given access to the king's throne for the advancement of the king and his mission. And this is not like the church as in like me. This is the church as in like us. Like we collectively now are the key holders. So if God wants to do something, he's going to do it through us. Some doors will not be opened until we pray them opened. Oh, I haven't proved that yet. Hold on. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What doors you pray open, I'll open up in heaven. There's an incredible example of this in Acts chapter five when the disciples are let out of prison and it says that the doors were open for them to be let out of prison. But then later the jailers went and looked at the doors and the doors were closed. In the physical, the doors were closed, but in the spiritual, the doors were open. There are spiritual doors that we have to open up so practical things can happen. Let me, let me make it more clear. There are people in your life who are still imprisoned that will not be set free until the door is open through prayer. Some of you, the only reason you're here this morning is because grandma prayed you into this place. You'd still be smoking something somewhere. Okay, this at least means we've got to get good at praying. There's, in this context, two types of prayer. There's reactionary prayer, and reactionary prayer is really important. Both of these types of prayer are equally important. And reactionary prayer is, reactionary prayer is the diagnosis has already happened. Reactionary prayer is, this is going on in my life. This is going on in somebody's life that I love. And when we pray at the end of every service and the elders are up here and I say, hey, they want to pray with you, they do. And this is important. And you send me Facebook messages and I'm glad you do. And we add you to list and we pray. That's important and we got to do that. But there is a second type of prayer that is like a proactive, enemy-defeating, wall-tearing-down, prison-gate-opening type of prayer that also has to be present in his church. 
It's the, the type of prayer that says, like, like, we have access to the king's treasury, that all of the wealth and the riches of God's kingdom are over there. And those wealth and riches are, are hope and salvation and restoration of all things. Peace. Fear. Gone. Those are what his wealth and his riches are, and we have access to those. And we can bring them to other people. We can pray for opportunities to be opened. It means that we have to have a, a, a type of prayer as a church body that prays in this way. Like it's better than saying, I know right now it doesn't look like the door is open, but we can pray it open. And when you do, when you do pray it open, it takes, or when the door does open, point four, it takes Holy Spirit discernment and wisdom to know which doors to walk through and which ones not to. I can't do an entire like, discussion on biblical wisdom right now. So I will point you to a, um, a series I did at the end of 2019 called Biblical Wisdom or Becoming Wise, something like that. It's on our podcast, and it's eight weeks on how to grasp biblical wisdom. So I can point you back to that. But this is hugely important. It takes wisdom and, and Holy Spirit discernment to know how to walk through the right door. Let me give you just a couple of points real quick. If in the decision you begin avoiding scripture, avoiding the Holy Spirit, and avoiding wise people in your life, you're not supposed to walk through the door. It's not the right door. Don't walk through it. Don't walk through it. Remember that story of Noah way back at the beginning? I remember it really well because it's the only Bible story Reagan will let me read to her right now. I want to read Noah. Gosh. Okay. What did Noah teach us? Obedience now leads to protection later. Right? Obedience now leads to protection later. Don't walk through the door. Now, on the other side, how do you know when it's the right door to walk through? Because the Holy Spirit, because of Scripture, and because of wise counsel around you. Because all of those things begin to work together, and you go, yeah, this is the door that I'm supposed to walk through. I mean, this building is actually a pretty decent example. This building is a kingdom opportunity that came to us in March, and in my unbelievable brilliance as your fearless leader was shown this building on a real estate brochure, looked at it, drove the three miles from the exit out here, and thought to myself, nope. I was like, this is eh, too far away. No one's going to come to this thing. And so we put away the brochure for two months. And we didn't talk about it because brilliant Stephen was trying to build his own door out in Perrysburg with some land and this stupid idea with a barn. I'll get into it later. No, I won't. (laughs) 
But being set up biblically with elders, with my wife, we retook a look. We looked at this building. I still had the brochure, walked around it with one of our elders, Frank, went home, showed the brochure to Lindsay, and this time, I was still wrong. I said, here's the brochure. I don't think we're interested. Lindsay flipped through the brochure and said, I think we're interested. And I said, I think we're interested. (laughs) So then I called Frank. I said, hey, we're interested. Yeah, I thought about it all the way home. Yeah. But I said, Frank, no one gives money to churches. No one gives money to churches that are only four years old. No one gives money to churches that are only four years old in the middle of a global pandemic. They do when God opens the door. And so in the midst of my foolishness, the biblical wisdom of being set up biblically and following a biblical leadership structure in the church got us to walk through the right door. Friend, when you operate biblically, it will stop you from walking through so many wrong doors. And it'll save you so much pain and heartache. When you operate biblically, it's going to be a little bit easier to know, should I date that person or not? Just because the swipe thing matches doesn't mean it's an open door. Should I take the job or not? Should I move or not? Operating biblically is your first line of defense against walking through the wrong door. And in the same way, it's your first line of offense in getting you through the right door. So prayer partners with God in opening some doors. It takes Holy Spirit wisdom and discernment to walk through the right doors. And point number five, when it's right, it's good. When you walk through the right door, it is good. Let me tell you what good doesn't mean, though. Good does not always mean easy. Good does not always mean smooth. Good does not always mean everything is right there for the taking. Just pick it up. It's yours. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the door was opened and there was opposition. He opened up the door. Boom. Someone's staring at him in the face. Opposition. Sometimes, because you have followed his Holy Spirit, because you have operated biblically, because you've done everything that God has been calling you to do, and prayer has opened the door, and the enemy knows he's about to be defeated, instead of trying to stop you on this side of the door, he tries to destroy you on the other side of the door. 
which means just because you made it through the door, don't put your defenses down. Just because you made it through the door, don't stop praying. Where's Lindsay? This is going to be more fun with music. Just because you're walking through the door doesn't mean you can't be attacked anymore. Let me give you an example. In the Old Testament, the Israelites have waited a really, really long time for an open door. They finally walk in or get to the the precipice of the open door, the promised land. And 12 guys run in to the open door and they look around and they go, oh, there's giants in the land. This door must not be for us. This can't be the right door, God. Look at these guys. They're huge. Why would you bring us here? You know what the most common words and Jesus' instruction then are to these men and those who would walk through that open door? Be strong and courageous because sometimes walking through the open door is going to take all of the strength that that little church in Philadelphia had, but now empowered by a risen, holy, true Christ, they would have all of the strength they needed to walk into what God had them for. And there could be a door right now that is opened up for you. And you're like, I don't want to walk through. Listen, some of you are absolutely stagnant in your faith because God has opened up a door for months, years, decades, and you're just standing there. And he's like, walk through the door. Walk through it. You do have spiritual gifts you can use. There is something I want to do in you. Stop being scared and walk through the door. Why? Because at the end of this promise for the church in Philadelphia, once they walk through the door, Jesus tells them three things will be true of them. Three things are true of this church once they walk through the open door. He says, I will take your unstable ground and I will make it stable. I will make you a pillar. You're going to bring stability. The second thing he says is all of the changing of identity and name, you will now know a permanent name. And the third thing he says is, and your enemy will be defeated. It's all right there in the text. And so when you walk through the open door that God has made open for you, You become stable in what Christ wants for you. Your identity gets rooted more deeply in his gospel. And the enemies will be defeated. Christ proved this to us when he conquered our ultimate enemy on the cross. I'm not promising smooth sailing. Paul walked through an open door and it led to his execution. walking through the open door is discipleship. And there's always a cost to discipleship. But it is 
worth it? I would imagine this morning that some of you are faced with doors that you're looking at and going, man, I don't know. Should I I walk through or should I not? I imagine some of you, if if your heart could begin to dream again, there's some of those things in God's treasury, healing, hope, restoration, a salvation for a loved one that you would love to see released. You'd love to see it released. And you gave up praying for it. As a church, as a church, we need to be really good at praying that God would open up the doors he wants to open and praying for each other that God would open up the doors in our own lives. You know, the country of Israel, they have this rule where everyone who hits a certain age has to serve in the military. Why do they do that? Well, one, it's personal, trains these young individuals. What's the second reason they do it? Because if they ever get attacked, they know everybody knows how to handle a gun. Everybody knows how to fight. It's almost as if in the church, there should be like this mandatory type of training in prayer so that if the world ever gets so weird and crazy that everyone's looking out and going, what in the world is happening right now? At least everyone knows how to fight. Or maybe it's not the whole world. Maybe it's just someone in our church and their whole world has fallen apart and they know, but at least in my church, everyone knows how to fight. And then we fight with each other and open up the doors that are supposed to be opened. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.